Hello and welcome to the Arrow Video Podcast with Sam and Dan. My name's Dan Martin, special effects artist and podcaster, and I am, as ever, joined by my lovely co-host. Sam Ashurst. I'm a writer, I'm a director, and I'm ridiculously excited to talk about this fortnight's film, Over the Edge. But before we do that, Dan, what is the plot of Over the Edge. Oh, it's shit being a kid. There you go, done. <laughs> it's specifically shit being a kid in America, uh, in suburban America, in suburban America in the early 80s. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so it's a relatively simple description of a, a relatively almost plotless film. It's got a real documentary feel. The characters are kind of fantastic, but you're kind of just hanging out with them to a certain extent, right? Yeah, grunge verite. Grunge verite, that is beautiful. Yeah, it has that real kind of Larry Clark kids feel, like that sense that you are watching something real. And that's partly because of the superbly natural performances, which involved a lot of improvisation, but it's also in the filmmaking choices. So the way it kind of establishes the location first with a factual crawl, that kind of makes it feel like a documentary, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's it, it's interesting because it like it acknowledges that these this is like loosely based on real events, not one specific thing. Although there is one specific thing that happened that is at the crux of the narrative, but it was really just about this kind of the urban suburban expansion of America and the way it was leaving this generation behind and breeding discontent, boredom. Like boredom was such a huge catalyst. This movie is widely considered a punk movie, and while it's not a movie about punks, it has a very punk sensibility. And I think that a lot of that comes from the fact that the punk like movement, the punk mindset, came from what the fuck has society got for me? And this movie was very much about a youth left behind. Mm. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and you and I actually, this is uh, a rare one these days because um, we actually watched this for the first time together. Um, yeah. a long time ago it was actually Kayla Janice's pick for movie night when she was staying um, at yeah. the house and the film has stayed with me very powerfully ever since like I'll always be grateful to Kayla for showing us this anyone who listens to this podcast by this point knows that I love a kind of working class story and this is a, a really really great kind of working class rage movie um insanely cathartic with a superb soundtrack so yeah i was so excited when arrow announced this disc and this release absolutely does the film justice there's so many extras and they're all magnificent i don't know how much i really want to talk about the movie itself i don't know how you feel dan but this is you know it's not a horror movie uh it's not a title that a lot of the arrow collectors might be familiar with it was kayla that introduced it to me and i think to you as well you hadn't yes, heard yeah, of it yeah, before she kind of pulled it out of the bag i'd heard the name but i'd never seen it yeah so i i think that this will be one that a lot of people haven't seen but it is a true true gem and i really feel very lucky that arrow has, has created this kind of perfect release for this perfect film so I'd rather kind of talk about the extras, but Dan, is there anything on the movie that you want to go into? 
Well, I mean, not to get ahead of ourselves, but I've got some some fun stuff for extra features where we will talk a little bit about the first, like maybe half of the movie okay. contextually. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I just yeah, you're completely right. It's it's all down to the performances. These kids were cattle called, but they were a lot of them didn't have a lot of acting experience. They were often allowed to improvise. There are some great extras on this. There's some uh, a couple of really great audio commentaries. But there's one bit where the director points out that for for one reason or another i won't go into why some kids are shouting over an intercom and they were just allowed to to shout whatever they wanted and the director's like laughing to himself being like oh i guess that kid was just forced to play the violin brilliant yeah no the the commentary with the the director the producer and the writers is really wonderful absolutely comprehensive it contains some of the best stories i've ever heard about matt dillon um, the description of Dylan being influenced by the Fonz and Rocky leading up to making this film is just so fantastic. I have never well, not, made... Not, yeah, not even in his performance, but just in his persona. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's so brilliant. He, he wasn't an actor. He wasn't looking to act. Yeah. And they, they talk about the fact that he was basically thought they were on the make for yeah. like the first chunk of it. Yeah, it, yeah. It's, it's really good. There's it, some great Dylan. The the $20 bill story is great. Yeah, it's just a really, really entertaining commentary and, and packed with facts. Uh, and it does it does refer to stuff on the screen, um, but does kind of divert into a lot of conversational stuff. But the energy is just so great and it's it's consistently interesting. Absolutely. Um, there's there all, is... Go on. About, about halfway through, there is a bit where they just stop talking for just long enough that I thought the commentary was broken. <laughs> Yes, yeah. yeah. I think they're just watching the movie, which is, you know, they can't be blamed for that. It's a good movie. Yeah, now this is um, this is going out ahead of our True Romance episode, but behind the scenes detail, we, we just recorded our True Romance um, one for, for various reasons. But um, yeah, that also happened on the Tarantino commentary on the True Romance disc, where um, there were certain points where he'd just say, oh, I'm just going to sit back and enjoy this, this scene. And it's like, would rather you talked actually yeah maybe maybe uh mate with a jibber jabber quentin <laughs> yeah i mean the one time where he doesn't talk anyway um that's <laughs> that's for an episode that's still now to come. you shut the fuck up yeah um but yeah on this disc on this disc there is a lovely 72 minute documentary um which again is is really yeah. magical to have very engaging it's clearly shot in lockdown but the stories are fantastic it's the complete history of this film um and you know it, it with backstory to to people involved in the making of it like jonathan kaplan talking about his mother working with Elia kazan when he was younger and, and talking kind of about the politics of that time but everyone kind of talks about their family and background and there's some great archival photos mixed in with the self-shot stuff um, it really does go deep into every element. Like I was especially gratified to get even more information about the casting process, which, as you kind of point out, Dan, is such a significant element of this film oh, and yeah. what, what makes it so unique. Um, but to get footage of Matt Dillon discussing this film, like, wow, I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it. That is in this documentary. So a really, really fine disc. Um, any extras jump out at you, Dan? Uh, to be honest, that just the the director's commentary was just so yeah uh, it had me wrapped yeah i've um i've taken to uh <laughs> i've taken to listening to commentaries on the uh on the arrow streaming service in audio only format while i drive to work that's great yeah and it's just such a fucking great way of consuming more film <laughs> 
That's really good. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting, actually. There's something I want to talk to you about off mic, Dan. Remind me <gasps> when we finished. Um, Is it that murder we did? <laughs> yes, it's 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 the fifth of the uh, 23 murders we did. I just really want to go back and revisit it. But um, oh, before we do that... That was a good one. <laughs> before we do that, yeah, I just I guess I just really want to say, please, please buy this disc. Please support releases like this. Um, it, it's not often that I go into kind of shill mode for Arrow on this podcast. Um, but, Despite that literally being what they pay us for. Well, exactly. And, um, sort of. If, sort of. If we're, we're given an, un, a ridiculous amount of freedom. And yeah, if there are, are any people who work at Arrow listening to this uh, uh, podcast, you never know, it might happen. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm really sorry for everything I've done over the past hundred or so episodes. Uh, but this one time, I am going to sit here and just say directly to every Arrowhead listen to this, please buy this movie you will love it it has so many special performances moments and the the third act is just joyous um it's like it gives you the kind of endorphin rush of, of any comfort movies you've got in your collection so for that reason and for the fact it's essentially a complete guide to making a movie like this yeah and for and for matt Dillon in a really rather fetching tank top i mean that is the main reason to watch it to be honest like there's <laughs> yeah. young matt Dillon in a tank top yes yes i don't really know what else to say about this film dan so do you have any kind of final words before we move on to recommendations and give it some more context that way no 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 it's it's great watch it buy it watch all the extras it's a really good film i think you'll love it uh, but but also you might know some of the films we're recommending and you can use them to sort of triangulate it as to whether or not it fits your tastes that's it that's that's kind of the aim here and, and my first one is really quite well known and hopefully provides some context described as Camus for kids do you know what film i'm i'm recommending based on that line dan no oh, that's... i like i like it though yeah that really so stuck with me that description but yeah rumblefish is maybe my my favorite francis ford coppola movie which i know is a big statement he has made some iconic movies um but i've got a lot of nostalgia for rumblefish i loved the book when i was a kid and it's a a brilliant adaptation it kind of feels the closest thing we've got to a modern day kazan movie though obviously it's not really that modern day anymore but um obviously kazan is discussed on the uh over the edge disc And yeah, it's another exploration of working class teenagers featuring Matt Dillon. It it almost feels like an existential sequel. So yeah, I think that's all I'll say about Rumblefish. Everybody knows Rumblefish. It's been released many times on Blu-ray. I think it's about to come out uh, on a 4K release. So if you haven't seen Rumblefish, that is another massive recommendation. How do you feel about Rumblefish, Dan? I, I, I really like it. I don't think I've seen it since I was about 14. Yeah, no, it's definitely a 14-year-old's movie, isn't it? Yeah, I I mean, I had it on VHS. It was sort of when I was getting into cinema. And and it was a yeah I picked up a tape of it and, and I really enjoyed it but I just haven't revisited it. Yeah, no, it's it's, it's still great, still great. Dan, what's first from you? Uh, first from me is if you like your <laughs> youthful boredom movies but you like them a bit posher, you should check out Lindsay Anderson's If. It's basically got the same storyline as Over the Edge, it but has. everyone's in a private school. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> They're both based uh, on true stories, true events. Uh, if is actually based on stuff that went down at the college that I went to, although it wasn't a 
I, I actually I don't think it was a, a private I don't think it was ever a private school uh, certainly wasn't private when I did my levels there but but it did used to have a, uh, a sort of military requirement as most low-level higher education did at the time and therefore it had guns on the premises and that's how that happened it's early if not first uh, performance from Malcolm McDowell yeah if you haven't seen it it's directed by Lindsay Anderson it's from 1968 it's fucking great uh, it's another treatise on boredom, although this is quintessentially British. Yeah, it's amazing. Can I say anything else about it, Sam? I feel like I, I feel like I should just tell people they should watch it. Yeah, I've, again, weirdly, even though this is a film you and I know very well, I think a lot of people might not have encountered it. Um, more people Cr- have seen that than have yeah. seen Over the Edge, so it's a great contextual yeah. recommendation. But I think we probably shouldn't go too deep into it, just in case. I'm, I'm so protective of plots, Dan. You may have noticed this. I know. <laughs> I'm, I'm interested to see how you respond to the extra feature. The rule we had on the extra feature is we wouldn't discuss anything that wasn't acknowledged in the summary of oh. the film on Arrow. There you so, go. Yeah, perfect. There you go. That's the thing. No, I'm really, really excited to listen to that. And and that's kind of, I guess, because we have that, that's why we haven't gone too heavy into um, the actual movie itself in the first part of the show. But stay tuned to the end because Dan has uh, an exciting extra feature for us there. So, um, And we've also got Sion Sono. So um, I don't know why I'm saying that now. I'm just going to go into my next recommendation, which is a terrible contextual movie. Because uh, I think many people won't have even heard of the Strawberry Statement. Is that fair to say, Dan? I know I, I I've heard the name I think probably from Tony I definitely haven't seen it. Yeah, so it's sadly been quite forgotten despite winning the jury prize at Cannes in 1970, but it's an explosive exploration of the youth riots of the 1960s. It's extremely powerful and not so much prescient but indicative of how little has changed it has an insane soundtrack and that's actually something that we didn't really go too deep on with over the edge is the soundtrack is fucking magnificent but yeah so is the strawberry statement in a different way it's a lot of kind of neil young stuff um brilliant performances by a very young cast very very french new way of feel which obviously makes sense for the subject matter a big recommend for the progressively politically minded so that's you dan the strawberry statement i recommend it i've worked out why i know it i haven't seen it it's on my imdb watch list already it's because of bud court ah oh, there you go you're you're harold from harold and maud to our listeners who may not immediately recognize the name Yeah, cool. Excellent. Well, what's next from you? Next from me is what I would consider to be the best modern punk film, although my bracket for modern is getting very broad. I mean, I just called Rumblefish modern, so I don't know what's going on with me, but anyway. Yeah, I mean, mine's from 1998. Is that modern? (laughs) That's more modern than mine. Is that modern anymore? (laughs) (laughs) Fuck no. That's 20 years ago, 23 years ago. Fucking hell. It's not modern anymore, is it? Um, it's James Merendino's SLC Punk. Oh, yeah. Uh, SLC Punk is fucking amazing. I think it might be the first place I heard the term straight edge. Okay. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's, again, it's a treatise on disaffected youth, boredom, breeding rebellion. It's, I'd say, a career best performance from Matthew Lillard. It's got some amazing, like, set pieces in it, including the sprinkler scene, not as sexy as it sounds, which is fantastic. And the Laserdisc speech as well. Like, it's just just a really fucking good punk movie. It's a more knowingly punk film because it it exists post-punk rather than pre-punk, like Over the Mm. Edge. 
Um, but it's yeah, it's absolutely fantastic. It's about um, this air of discontent and and not owning your own future, your own world, and what that breeds for uh, for the youth. Yeah, I, I love it. And let's throw in a quick recommendation for Woodlands Dark, Kayla's documentary, just purely because we were both the recipients of, of this film, um, of our love of this film, from her showing it to us in the first place. And her documentary is fucking superb. Just a, a really, really amazing piece of work. So She knows her onions. She definitely knows her onions. All right. All onions. Um, let's go into recommendations based on the past couple of weeks. No, I've got another one. Oh, all right. Go for it. It's not available in the UK, and I thought it was because it was a wrong'un, but it turns out it's because of some rights clearance, which is much less rock and roll. You mentioned Larry Clark earlier. This is another Larry Clark picture. It's not kids. It's Ken Park. Ah. It's the underseen cousin of kids, uh, directed by monster, problematic monster Larry Clark and problem-wracked genius Harmony Corinne, uh, written by Harmony Corinne, directed by Larry Clark and Ed Lachman uh, in 2002. Ken Park is another film about kids largely either left to their own devices or with problematic family lives. Again, this kind of boiling pot for rebellion and resentment bubbling over in a very different way but also a very similar way to Over the Edge. And I'd definitely say it's worth tracking down. I think I've still got my Dutch DVD of it. it it's watchable. It, like it's as in it's it's findable. You can watch it. Cool. But um, it's, yeah, you can't go down to HMV or you can't get it off Zavi. I'll do a very quick extra recommendation then and say smithereens. Uh, yeah, I'll just say that word, smithereens. Just go hunt out smithereens. It's on, just go smash stuff. Yeah, it's on Criterion, so it, it's not hard to find. And it's on Criterion in the UK as well. So, yeah, it's just a really cool, fun, punk hangout movie uh, directed by a woman. And, yeah, has a really kind of unique tone and atmosphere. So smithereens, I recommend it. Right, that was a last-minute edition. What have you been watching in the past couple of weeks, Dan? Last couple of weeks, I was having a conversation with friend of the podcast, Andre, and uh, he asked me if I'd seen this movie, and I hadn't, and I was interested in it. And then he told me a fact about it that made me put it right to the top of my list. So this is It Happened in Broad Daylight by Ladislo Vadia from 1958. And... The fact that made me go, holy fuck, I have to watch this immediately, is this... Now, I'm trying to get this right because it's convoluted, but this movie was made and is amazing, and then they did a novelization of this movie, and then that novelization was adapted for the screen in America as... Uh, Sean Penn's The Pledge. Oh. Which I love. Yeah, great movie. Yeah, so it's it's ostensibly... I, I didn't know that The Pledge was basically a remake... Um, because it's not quite a remake. There's a book sort of in the middle as an air gap. But it's about, yeah, in this case, a, a doctor who is a professional witness uh, at a crime. A kid has been murdered. He's called in. He doesn't think that the the local that they've sort of like rousted and said, oh, he's uh, he, he's definitely the one that did it. He doesn't. He has doubts about whether that guy was guilty. And during a particularly unpleasant sort of like public trial by the public the guy that they accused hangs himself in prison and they're like slap 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 case closed no need to think about this any further and he makes as you know as in the sean penn movie he makes a pledge to the mother that he will fight get to the bottom of this and work out what the fuck's going on because he's pretty sure that this is part of a pattern of child murders that's been happening across germany 
and it's great. You are into people dying in prison movies right now. I mean, I just like sadness. Yeah, no, that's fair. Sadness is good. Sadness I like, is cathartic. I like. I like. Um, I like movies. I like movies about people having uh, opportunities they were owed cut short, taken away from them. Like, I like to have my fucking soul pulled out through my chest. Yeah. <laughs> I, I will say. Uh, for those listening who have seen and loved The Pledge, that I don't really know how much this film will have to offer you because it's ostensibly the same film with, uh, like, a, a... It's it's not quite as good as The Pledge. The Pledge is better. But it's an amazing film. And if you haven't seen The Pledge, I'd still watch The Pledge first, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe, okay, I'm changing my recommendation. My yeah, recommendation is The Pledge. It's but The Pledge. Then... I support that, yes. <laughs> But then watch it happen in broad daylight because it's amazing, and I I love watching the like the non English language originals of things. So do that. Awesome, love it. Right, particularly separated by decades. Well, after Dan's made you feel a bit sad, uh, maybe pop on my first recommendation based on the past couple of weeks, which is Girl Boss Blues Queen Bee's Counterattack. Oh yes, from the 19... Queen series are amazing. Yes, exactly, from 1971. Now, this is described as the first pinky violence movie. Uh, it's an extremely slap-happy film with one of the most preposterous sex scenes in the history of cinema. Uh, you'll know it when you see it. I loved this whole movie so much. It's about a girl gang having an affair with a biker gang while being protected by a different gang that's run by a more powerful gang Basically, there's a lot of gangs in this film, uh, lots of sex, lots of violence and lots of perhaps unintentional in places humour. Cool costumes, great dialogue. Please, Arrow, pick up this whole series. It is incredible. Girl Boss oh. Blues, Queen Bee's Counterattack. I massively recommend it if you want a fun, good time. Oh, imagine like a really exhaustive like their Shaw Brothers box set sized Pinky Violence set from Arrow oh I mean please I mean Ooh. do you know what we need to do we we need to do Stray Cat Rock at some point um, yeah we I love really those movies do. anyway uh, let's do admin another time what have you been watching uh, other than the, the sad movies have you been watching anything <laughs> fun I watched it I, I did watch an upbeat movie and I will get to that in a second Excellent. but I would just like to say as as amazing as the sex scene you're talking about is, I I have to just put the waxia fucking <laughs> from Chinese torture chamber story to the top of the pile and say that is the most insane sex scene anyone will ever see. All right, well, <laughs> come on, listeners, have you got weirder sex scenes for us? Not weirder. We don't want weird per se. <laughs> yeah, just more, more madcap, more more unique. Um, Maybe send us an email rather than uh, uh, recommending this stuff to us on Twitter because, you know, we don't want to get our accounts shut down. No, um, at, us, at us away. But yeah. I've got a blue tick now. I'm immortal. <laughs> <laughs> no one with a blue tick has ever had their entire account removed from Twitter. No, no, you're totally fine. You're totally fine. Um, right. Yeah. What What's next from you, Dan? It's from 2014. It's on Amazon Prime for free. I have no idea how I never heard about it. I feel like maybe it played at Fright Fest and I just missed it. It's called Suburban Gothic by Richard Bates. Have you seen this? No, film, I haven't Sam? actually. No. Yeah. I'd never heard of it. It stars Matthew Gray Goobler and Kat Dennings. But it's got amazing cameos from people like John Waters and Jeffrey Coombs. It's 
ostensibly a horror comedy about a young guy who can see ghosts and has moved back home after failing to find a job after going to business school because his father made him do it because otherwise he'd cut him off and disown him and he starts to realize that maybe his house is haunted and he has to do something about it and local pretty goth cat dennings from a bar down the street is uh it's sort of along for the ride but the real star of the show is ray weiss who plays his father and has all the best lines and i re- i had a little bit of a personal epiphany about what i like in comedy when watching this movie i like disproportionately emotional responses i like people who aren't very good at lying but really stick to it and I like people who immediately change their minds on things with almost no provocation. My favourite thing in comedy, I think, the thing that will always make me laugh is when people shout for no reason, yeah. like out of the blue. Yeah, yeah, disproportionate emotional response. That's what I mean. Yeah, exactly. So it, so good. It ties directly to to what you're saying. So yeah, yeah, you'll you'll like it. Ray Weiss is just as the father who's like a hair away from disowning his son for the entire film is absolutely fantastic. Oh, it sounds brilliant. Sounds really up my street. And before it's, I go on, it's, to my... it's uneven as fuck. Like it's not gonna be a classic but it's very, very good. And if you, like me, feel like there aren't enough good horror comedies, this mm. is definitely in the good horror comedy bracket. Yeah. And you should watch it. Yeah, it's it's very, very rare that people get that right. And um, fantastic. I will definitely watch that. And very quickly, before I do my next recommendation, I feel like the universe wants me to share this story because I keep seeing this this tale pop up on on social media in podcasts that i listen to like it keeps coming back to me and you've made it relevant so you may or may not be aware precious arrowhead that john waters once took a photograph of steve buscemi dressed as him uh, with the same moustache as him and put it on the front of a christmas card and sent it out to all of his friends and nobody noticed so there you go if you haven't heard that story before i feel like the universe wants me to put it onto record for some reason because i've heard it so many times this week anyway my next recommendation has nothing to do with that though it is a film that i think john waters may like it's johnny guitar one of the coolest westerns ever made Featuring an absolute career highlight from Joan Crawford. It's coming to Blu-ray from Eureka on September the 20th. I was lucky enough to get an early look and it is a fantastic disc. Directed by Nicholas Ray, Dan, who uh, you're a fan of. Um, It's extremely stylishly shot and the film looks beautiful on blue for the first time in the UK. You get a commentary, a video essay, an introduction from Martin Scorsese. Great disc perfect film definitely worth a pre-order for the slipcase and booklet johnny guitar i very much recommend it there we go nice is that it that's it isn't it i think that's it oh well until we get to extra features extra features extra features extra features dan why don't you start with your incredible extra feature please so our long-term listeners may remember from the Candyman episode a long time ago that I got my good friend Will Jennings, artist, fellow cineast, although with a, an unbelievably different area of knowledge <laughs> to me and Sam, and generally all-round good, well-educated man to opine on Candyman because of Candyman's sort of urban sprawl setting. And I thought that uh, I should make him watch Over the Edge. And I did. And these are the words he said about it. Hello, Will. Thanks for coming back on the podcast. It's been a long time since Candyman. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. It has been a long time since Candyman, but I haven't seen the follow-up, the remake of it yet. I don't know. Has that even come out yet? 
I believe it is now in cinemas, but I have not yet seen it. Okay, we'll do that someday. Yeah, so obviously you've just watched Over the Edge. It was a film I, I've seen before, but on this rewatch, I very much thought of you, and particularly because of conversations we've had recently um, about a subgenre of film you sort of introduced me to, The City Symphony. Um, and, the, and the idea that this movie is sort of a, a city symphony for a conceptual city, but, uh, well, a genre of city, if you will. <laughs> um, what were your feelings watching the film for the first time? Yeah, it was good. I mean, like, so a city symphony, for anyone who doesn't know, is kind of a, a, a film based around a place, historically a city like Berlin or Paris, um, and it's usually set to music where the protagonist is not a person or a story, but the place itself, and you kind of follow it for a day. Um, so this is kind of city symphony, but I guess it's more about the suburbs and the sort of the boredom of the suburbs and the sort of the, the lack of time and structure of the suburbs and the lack of care for anyone that isn't like a homeowner in the suburbs, like a child. Um, so yeah, it was really good, it was interesting. And suburbs are something which come up a lot in architectural thinking at the moment, mainly from America, but increasingly in Britain too, where we kind of cover our landscape with bovis boxy homes, um, rather than really thinking about what makes place. Um, so it was nice to see, but it wasn't a city symphony, and there wasn't much music in it. Um, except for I remember one car chase scene, which I don't think is a spoiler. There's a car chase in the middle with just incredibly awful, jaunty, fun music over the top, which just was hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I mean, it's it's sort of loosely considered a punk movie as well, you know, Teen Rebellion, punk, all that kind of stuff. And so it does have that kind of punk soundtrack, but it's that a lot of that's diegetic music. There's mm. not that much of a score no. per se. Yeah. I, I like the score that they do have. Um, and it was actually the director's father who wrote the score. He was already a, a very established um, composer for film. So he was a bit of a get um, for the uh, for the thing. But I, yeah, I see what you mean about it. Not it, It's not about the, the mood in the way that a, a dialogue-free musical piece would be. No, but the narrative of the, of, the, the sort of the characters that you follow and the way in which they interact with place is very much about the mood of the place. And also the sense of not just the suburbs, but a suburbs that even in what seems like a short space of time has had quite a few layers of like, architectural development. So we see uh, like the, the sign for the new homes, which are promised, which are going to come there, the shiny new homes. I think we see some people live in some, but then we also kind of go to what is a bit more like the projects and they might be 10 years older, I guess, but they've already left a bit run down and a bit more um, sort of uh, destitute. So there's this already the idea that, that kind of the, place making of these places is just about creating the shiny new things and then completely forgetting about them and not giving a shit to move on to the next high value shiny new thing well yeah they talk about saying when the, the kids are sort of hanging out in that abandoned show home and they say uh i don't think anyone's they're going to come back they've, they've run out and my dad says they've run out of money <laughs> and the idea that it's this sort of prospecting that's going on with the properties like a sort of version of the gold rush yeah, and um, and also the things which are promised, like when a, you know, when the gold rush is promised, you're promised all the gold. Just like as when a big new property development is promised, you're promised all these sort of new public amenities and gardens or civic things. And then slowly they get value engineered out, and then what gets built is usually a very much a privatized thing where the all of the big promises are not there anymore. So in this one, I think they were promised like a, a kid's um, a drive-through cinema, I think, and a, a roller roller skating center. And yeah. um, and it gets, you turn out pretty quickly, you've seen him pasting over the sign and it's just, uh, that, that idea is gone because that's, it only needed to exist as an idea just to get enough people through the door. 
Absolutely. And, and it stands to represent another betrayal of these children who have been taken from these other places. Like, you know, they talk about having lived in New York mm. and these, these, these places that they obviously preferred. They've been relocated out to these like peculiar, uh, like sort of suburban sprawl suburbs. Uh, and they're told, oh, but don't worry, there's, it's a bowling alley and a cinema. There's a bowling alley, there's a cinema coming. Um, and, and again, the, our, our lead questions his father about this. And he's like, ah, oh, you know, people aren't going to come here for a bowling alley and a cinema. <laughs> I quite like right at the very beginning of the film um, you know how at the beginning of films you get these sort of messages that flash up that this is based on a true story or based on true characters yeah. and the front of this one it says it's quite nice it says this story is based on true incidents occurring during the 1970s in a planned suburban community of condominiums and townhomes where city planners ignored the fact that a quarter of the population was 15 years old or younger so it doesn't sort of say where and it doesn't say if the incidents were all in one place or anything it's just like this vague this shit happened <laughs> but the thing is it still happens even here in london like um where i'm talking from but really across the whole of britain or anywhere where your listeners are listening in from um pe young people in particular are so built out of place because they don't consume in the same way they're not spending money they're not operating in the city in the same way and they're kind of you know whether it's hostile architecture like benches that stop you skateboarding or whether it's um, privatized areas where security move you on if you're hanging out and not spending money in the shops um, or even I remember a few years ago under New Labour where they um, uh, sort of uh, shops could be fisted with this very very high-pitched buzzing noise to stop kids congregating or in council estates or anywhere which only uh, you know people under 18 would hear because of a, a much higher sensitivity of hearing so adults would know there's this constant high-pitched chirping noise but it, kids would just be driven away so there's this kind of this way of building place which is really hostile to young people and really doesn't embed them with a sense of ownership or citizenship which is a problem because then they grow up and they don't like the place when they don't care about it they don't value it because it doesn't feel like it's for them yeah Totally. Um, one of my favourite side facts about those high-pitched beepings is that for a while kids started using them as text alert tones so that they could like get phone calls in class oh, wow. when they were banned from having phones and the teachers wouldn't be able to hear the phone making the noise. So, so that is, I mean, kids, and I'm saying this as a as a middle-aged man, <laughs> uh, um, <laughs> so I'm, I'm, also, I'm looking at kids now, but I'm also casting back into my memory, are creative. You know, there was a thing a few years ago, um, Camden Council built a thing called the Camden Bench, which was designed to be like a, a seat, a public seat that anyone could sit on, but designed in such a way that a homeless person couldn't sleep on it. You couldn't rest on it for too long because it's a bit uncomfortable. And it was this very sort of weird architectonic shape, which was meant to be very difficult for skateboarders. So it was impossible to be used as any other way than just a brief rest. But what the kids in Camden saw there was a real challenge. And they just invented new skateboarding moves to try and use this thing, new flips and new angles to approach it. So that actually you could kind of take ownership and usefulness from this object, which was designed to kind of kick you out. And it's the same way maybe these kids kind of, you know, take over the, like you say, the show home or, um, you know, the, the landscape in this place. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's a, about the... Um... The, the population of a space that wasn't designed for them, but the fact that that's innately going to be counter to the way in which the people who designed it wanted it to be used. Yeah, although in this film, there isn't much evidence of any space being designed to be used by anyone. There's not much adult stuff there. Um, in fact, there's a, the only bit I think where they talk about is, um, and there's a quote here, I've got a one of the characters says, a community with a juvenile crime problem is not a community with a high property resale value. You can have the finest <laughs> housing in the world, and we do, 
but nobody's going to pay up to $100,000 to live in a, in a decorator-colored slum. So there's this thing that actually the only service this place is designed for is to like flip or for maximize profit. And actually living there of whatever age you are um, is not part of the design. But obviously for an adult, you can live there by just driving to work or sitting at home and having your beer, watching TV. Kids need to actually kind of be social <laughs> and out there. To occupy the space, yeah. Um, well, thank you so much for joining us. I have one last question for you, which is that if people uh, watch this and thought, I want more films about space, <laughs> um, about places, um, I mean, you can just recommend your favourite City Symphonies, but do you feel that there are any that, that maybe are more aligned with this that people might want to check out? Oh, I'm terrible at picking things out the top of my head, but I'm, I remember the Florida Project from a couple of years ago. I think Sean Baker, the director, was a really yeah. beautiful film, which is about kind of the hinterland in Florida surrounding Disneyland, and Disneyland being this very top-down curated place of what leisure and design should be. And then this fringe of kind of often quite poor and abandoned people and places around it was a really beautiful study of place. Um, there's also a really good, and I can't remember, top, um, really good old film, one of the earliest films of Paris made, which is about the zone, which was an area to the north of the city, which is where um, proper, proper slums and um, uh, shanty towns and where working class people lived. And it's a really early, I think, silent um, black and white film just documenting this area and some of the people there. And again, it's that sort of leftover space, which is not the Paris you would have seen on the Lumiere Brothers films of the day. So that kind of footage, which shows places like that is always really interesting. Um, and I don't know if you do show notes, but I can try and find a link for that because it's all free online and um, you can add it into your, your podcast notes. Thank you. Yes, I uh, I will do exactly that. It will probably just be a form of us tweeting out. We do very much we like a... Uh, we, we don't have a lot of them, but we like silent film recommendations on the podcast. So Any film can nice. be silent if you just turn the sound off. <laughs> top top <laughs> tip. <laughs> Thank you very much. Fantastic. There we go. Uh, I haven't heard it yet, but I'm sure if it's anything like the Candyman chat... It will be illuminating and interesting. So we'd had less to drink. It's more salient. Oh, even better. Um, brilliant. Well, uh, I also have an extra feature, though it's a shared extra feature, because for Fright Fest Live, Dan and I sat down for a chat with Sion Sono, one of our shared favourite filmmakers, uh, oh, to yeah. mark the release of Prisoners of the Ghostland which is out in the UK on Friday, if you're listening to this uh, as it goes up. And because we didn't want to hoard it for all the people that watched it on uh, Fright Fest, we've decided to clip a selection from that interview. And you can have a little listen to us talking to Sion Sono right now. You've said that you're a fan of American cinema and obviously Nick Cage is such a big part of American cinema. Was there anything about working with him that surprised you? みたいに
全く違うサムライアクションの映画になってしまう。そのサムライアクションにもまた順応、ぴったり順応して、クロスア今度は、えーじゃちゃえー、とマカロン、うん、スパゲッティウエスタンの時はチャールズ・ブロンソンみたいなって言って、で日本サムライアクションの映画になった途端、今度はクロスアキラの2船みたいにっていう感じで。すぐにこう順応するっていうか、そういうところがすごいと思って。うん。Okay、so、uh,、one of the biggest things about Nick Cage for Sion is that、uh, he's very, very、um, flexible and he makes all these great adjustments, you know, to, to the, whatever the situations it has,、uh, the things have become or, you know,、uh, they're, they're under.、Uh, for instance, And then that's actually that, is, that was quite,、uh, quite a surprise to, to Sion because it's such a big way. For instance, one of the examples is that you know,、uh, before、uh, we decided to shoot in Japan,、uh, we were actually uh, uh, shooting in elsewhere, actually in Mexico. And、uh, in original script,、um, the tone was more like a, a Western, you know, instead of a samurai Western or、uh, any East, East you know.、Um, yeah. Idea in it, and uh,、um, when, when we were still looking at the uh, spaghetti, spaghetti western is something that Sion wanted to do to the original script. And uh,、um, when we discuss about about that, when Sion discussed about that with Nick Cage, uh, Sion Nick Cage、uh, goes like, Okay, so I want to be, I want to create some character like Charles Bronson, uh, like a gunman、uh, character. And uh, uh, Sion really liked that idea. But when,、uh, when Sion had a heart attack,、uh, I don't know if you guys knew, but you know, heart attack back in 2000, February 2019,、um, because of his health condition,、um, he couldn't leave the country. So Nick Cage actually came to Sion and suggested that maybe we should shoot this film in Japan. And uh, uh, now, because now we are shooting in Japan, and the idea has become like, let's do samurai action, like samurai Western action. And、uh, then suddenly, Nick Cage was really open to any new ideas. And you know, he came to Sion and saying that maybe instead of Charles Bronson, you know, we, we should create a character like Mifune, Toshiro Mifune in a crossover movies, you know. So、um, that helped a lot.、Um, For, for the whole thing. Sion deals a lot with cults and, and cultists. I wondered how he felt about making his move towards English language cinema and American cinema、um, as America itself becomes increasingly described as, as driven by cultists. Um, yeah, between me and Sion, we always talk about the cults, anyways,、um, in general.、Um, so, yes, he completely agrees with you. You know, like、uh, that America, he thinks that America、uh, is becoming、um, the, the, the country of cult itself, you know,、uh, from his own perspective. So,、um, yeah, that's what he says. Mm. Mm. But Japan all,、um, is 
becoming that way as well, he believes. So it might not be only for America or Japan. It, it, it seems to be more like for the, the, the worldwide thing right now. That, that's amazing because, um, yeah, noticed a little detail in the background, um, you know, make our country great again. And it really felt like Sion was making those parallels between America and Japan. So that is a wonderful answer. Thank you. There we go. Lovely stuff. Yeah, great stuff. Yeah, he was a very, very cool guy. Uh, right. I think that's it. Social media. Dan, how can people hunt you down? I'm at 13 finger FX on both Instagram and Twitter. I'm doing my best. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> wow. Well, uh, I'm at Sam Ashurst uh, on Twitter. I'm at Sam Ashurst 23 on Instagram. I am also doing my best. I'm trying my hardest. Um, but, you know, mostly promoting the VHS release of uh, my last two movies, including one that was released earlier this year, A Little More Flesh 2 and A Little More Flesh. Uh, they're both available from Black Widio. And um, if you're interested in checking that out, I think we've still got around 50 bundles left. Uh, you get a cool soundtrack cassette, you get a Lock on Dina poster, and you get the two tapes for 60 bucks. They are going fast, so if you want to see these movies, this is the way to do it. Yeah, that's it. Thanks so much. Dan, Ooh, any I'm, final I'm words? Gonna, yeah, I'm going to say Will's uh, Twitter, because I forgot to ask him to say it on the interview. Uh, so Will is at Will Jennings 80 uh, on Twitter. You should follow him for uh, indignant political outrage and architecture tweets. He is actually, yeah, he's he's an entertaining account for sure. So yeah, I, I definitely uh, he's uh, got, second that. He's got a tweet in the British, I, th I think it's like the National Archive or the, the British Library Archive. Wow. They like, they licensed a tweet of his and put it in the archive. It was about the movie Cats. Jesus Christ! Is it, when you say that he's a well-educated uh, young man. What what uh, school did he go to? Out of interest, I have absolutely no idea. Okay, <laughs> he, he's got a bunch of degrees. Mm -hmm. Okay, very interesting. I'll ask him next time I speak to him because this this sniffs. I I smell the elite in what you just said there. No, Dan. no, he's not. He's he's not elite at all. Okay. Uh, Will was Will was uh, one of the one of the lucky poor boys who got a free ride because he's smart. Hey, good. All right. Well, I very much support that. So, yeah, please do follow him. And uh, hello, Will, if you're listening to this. Sorry for just <laughs> accusing you of being the elite. Um, I'm sure that will amuse you. All right. Thank you so much for listening. And I promise, sorry, we promise to be more professional. <laughs> Both of us. <laughs> Next time. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.